the Jason Cabinets experience is sponsored by Cabinets HR. Cabinets HR delivers HR to companies with 49 or fewer people across the United States with our platform that automates HR products and services while giving you access to a dedicated HR business partner for more complicated HR challenges. Small business loses an estimated $10,000 per employee per year because of unreliable HR. Small business owners are spending an average of 25% of the time on HR, time that would be better spent taking care of their people, their customers, and building their business. Cavernous HR saves small business owners time and money on, on their HR. Sign up at www.cavernousHR.com or email me at jasoncavernous at cavernousHR.com to learn more. Cavernous HR, focus on your business. We've got your HR. This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to Jason Kavnis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. Our guest today is Nick Ford. Nick, you ready to be great today? Absolutely. So, Nick, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Great. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, a softball question. I know you're, you like to travel. What's some of your favorite places to travel to? Ooh, well, it's funny because one of my favorite cities is actually London, although I spent a lot of time there. Still one of my favorite cities in the world. Actually, but saying that, my probably almost, you know, favorite city of all time, got to be Hong Kong. Uh, it's such a great city. Uh, Hong Kong is really vibrant. It's really different to everything else I've ever been. You know, if, if anyone's never been to the Far East or even been to Hong Kong, uh, you know, they really got to see it to believe it. Yeah. So what's a place where most people like, you know, oh, that's a great city. Everyone else go there. But you've been there like, yeah, I don't know. This kind of overrated. Well, I think for folks back home, I think they think uh, L.A. is a kind of a, you know, sparkly place where magic happens. And not so much. Not so much. Yeah, I, I absolutely. That pixie dust has long disappeared. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Back back home, I guess it's still viewed as the, uh, you know, as you say with the pixie dust. But now, no, no way, no way. I avoid it like the plague. <laughs> and what's the place you've been to where like most people are like you went there? I would never go there. But you know what? This is actually a great city. Uh, you know, I went to a city in China called Chongqing. Uh, not very many people make it that far in uh, to China. I went there with work a few years back. Uh, I had a great time there. You know, the team there took me out and said great places to eat, great things to do. You know, actually re in that real interior of China, it's really beautiful, you know, uh, right outside those big cities. Um, and I tell you, there's some cities, you know, twice the size, three times the size of Seattle we've never even heard of uh, in that country. So that, that's certainly one of them. But uh, that was good fun to be there. What's the place in your bucket list you haven't been to yet? Australia. Australia? Yeah, yeah. Australia and New Zealand, that's definitely a goal of mine to get over there and spend a bit of time in both of the great. Any plans to go there anytime soon? Uh, maybe. My husband and I are looking to get out there for our 25th anniversary, uh, which is, uh, I've, got, I've got to try and remember now, two years' time. Okay. Uh, so that's going to be a big trip. So next, guitar playing. How serious are guitar player right now? <laughs> Not that serious. Um, 
Yeah, not that serious, I would say. Uh, I've been playing the, or learning to play the guitar now for about six years. I don't think I'm that much better than I was six, well, I was six years ago. Um, so I moved on to piano now, and I'm just as bad at that now as well. So I can play both instruments really badly. <laughs> hey, at least you're trying. You know, everyone needs to learn new things. Yeah, yeah. So what got you interested in playing guitar and playing the piano? You know, I was looking for something to do that had nothing to do with my work. You know, uh, I work a lot and long hours and, you know, it was just, okay, so I, I really want to find something that's just for me uh, that has nothing to do with, you know, uh, work. And it just happened to be a musical instrument. Back when I lived in Seattle, uh, there was a guitar teacher who was just around the corner from uh, the office at Amazon. Uh, and that was a great way to start. But, you know, as I say, hell, I'm still learning. I, I, I'm still probably the worst guitar player in the world. <laughs> so do you have a, your own personal list of top five guitarists of all time? Uh, you know, I don't. I'm not that serious a guitarist. Okay. That's the thing, you know. Um, I can play a couple of tunes, but, uh, yeah, I'm not that serious a guitarist. It's really just a really, you know, basic hobby for me. So what someone said, Nick, um, I'll pay you a million dollars to play this one guitar song. <laughs> what would that song be? What would you play? Oh, blimey. How long have I got to learn this song? <laughs> <laughs> uh, for a million dollars, you'll be expecting something pretty good. I don't know, a sweet child of mine. Okay. I think is always would be would be that one, but that might take me yeah, a couple of months to learn that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so you actually grew up you were born and raised in Scotland, right? I was, yeah. I'm Scottish. I lived in Scotland for oh the first twenty years of my my life. Um, born in the borders area of Scotland, a place called Dumfries. Um, but my informative years were really all spent near Edinburgh. Uh, so Edinburgh, I kind of count as my home city. So for those of us, including myself, who are like kind of ignorant of the UK and stuff like that, it's like is United Kingdom like England, Scotland, Ireland? Like how's all that? Stop breakdown. You're just trying to get me in trouble. Uh, <laughs> <Just a little laughs> so, you know, I don't think anyone, uh, even people who are call themselves British, even know what the hell it is. Um, there's the United Kingdom, there's Great Britain, there's the British Isles. They're all different, right? Um, but when most people think of Great Britain, what we're really talking about is England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. That's I thought all about Wales. Uh, everybody does, you know, just that bit on the left. Um, I'm sure there'll be a few Welsh people who can you know, <laughs> comment on that. That, but um, you know, Wales is a great, great place as well. Actually, we like Wales. Spend quite a bit of time there. But um, but yeah, so Scotland, North bit, Wales, West, uh, and Northern Ireland, just over the water. Okay. And when was the last time you've been there? Uh, I was in Scotland last year. Okay. So yeah, seeing family last year. So most of my family are still They're back still in Scotland. Okay. Yeah, yeah. How often does your family come over here? You know, uh, not that often. Uh, my parents are getting quite old, and you know, uh, decrepit, and they're not really, you know traveling quite as well these days. My sister comes out every two years. Uh, it's great to see her. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, she, we always have a great time when she comes out, so. Yeah, Scotland is like really known for like one thing that I could really have like a great golf course. Or I think golf actually came from Scotland, I think. Yeah, well, I think um, I think China might disagree with that, but, yeah, uh, so. you know, but they'll probably say that they invented uh, whiskey as well, but everyone claims that too, so. Um, but yeah, so Scotland golf courses, of course. Uh, actually, my husband is from a village right near St. Andrews, mm -hmm. um, which most Americans will say is St. Andrews home of golf, right? Yeah. As a whole one word. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a beautiful course. You know, I've, I've, I went for dinner there once, uh, but <laughs> I don't play golf. 
So, <laughs> so did you move to States? Were you already married? Or you got married over here? Yeah. So back in the day, of course, it was a civil partnership in the UK that we that we did, and then when we moved to the US, uh, we got married in uh, Seattle as soon as we could, really, once the laws changed. Uh, so yeah, we got married back in. Now, now I'm really going to get myself in trouble now. Uh, a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so. Did y'all move to Seattle because like a looser or like a lot like free, more progressive place in the United States? Uh, it wasn't really part of the decision okay. making, to be honest. It was all the work. You know, I, I was working for Amazon at the time, um, just outside London, uh, and had the opportunity to transfer to Seattle. So it, we took it. Um, it was a you know biggest decision I think we'd ever made, and I would say probably the best decision we ever yeah. made, quite honestly. So. Nice. So I'm going way, way back in time, even past before you got married, I think. <laughs> But time me up your time, I think you said the Glen Morangie Company. Oh, Glen Morangie, yeah. It's like a whiskey company. Whiskey company, oh. yeah, yeah. Whiskey distillery uh, worked way back, you know, uh, it's a long time ago now, 30 years ago, uh, believe it or not. And I worked there, I was actually 16 when I first started working at Glen Morangie. Um, so this is like one of your first real jobs? Uh, yes. So <laughs> a bit of a story there. My first job, I actually got fired. So uh, this is, uh, yeah, I was there for three months. I was on a production line uh, making video recorders. Uh, that's really aging me now, right? Who the hell a video recorder is? Um, and I was on the production line and yeah, after three months I got fired. The letter said because I was a disruptive influence on the production line uh, was the official wording. Uh, so after that, I then went to work for Glen Morangie and I was there for six and a half years. So, you know, they quite like the disruptive element, I think. <laughs> yeah. So what, what actually did you do there? Like, yeah, so so my first job there, um, I was my first job was actually what they called relief receptionist. So my job was to sit on reception when the receptionist went for uh, went for a lunch, um, and I'd come in, in the morning, I'd make the uh, the coffee, wash the coffee mugs from the previous day, and part of my job was to walk up and down the yard with production plans from the production manager's office down to the production line and back again, and I'd do that three four times a day. Uh, that was my job. You know, I was sixteen fresh out of schools, first real job. I didn't know anything. I didn't know my arse from my elbow, right? I didn't know anything. So it was great that I had the opportunity to do it. Um, but the reality was that, you know, I started in the summer walking up and down this yard with these bits of paper backwards and forwards. Uh, and this is you know, long before we had, you know, computer systems and even email. Um, and it was fine in the summer, but when it got to winter, suddenly it wasn't such a fun job anymore. <laughs> um, and I suggested one day, hey, why don't you get two fax machines, stick one in your production office and one on the end of the production line. You can send these things backwards and forwards all day. Um, and they went, that's a really good idea, but what the hell are you going to do all day? Yeah. Uh, damn it, right? So so I moved into the blending team, uh, blending whiskey, sniffing whiskey all day. It was great fun. I mean, I can imagine. That's, that'd be a dream drop a bunch of people. Oh, man. I, I tell you, there's some days uh, when I think, oh, I wish I could just go back 30 years ago, sniff whiskey all day. Um, but there was a group of about 20 of us in the company who were, you know, trained and approved to be kind of, um, to nose the whiskey. Um, before, before every cask of whiskey goes into a vat, it has to be nosed by two people to make sure A, it's not off, but B, it's not exceptional and should be set aside. Um, but for about two years at Glenmorangie, uh, it was actually my job to do that, you know, six, seven yeah, hours a day. 
I was 16 when I was doing this. When I started Glenn Orange, I was 16. I just turned 17 when I went into the blending team. I, because I was. So the, I'm afraid to be jealous. Of well, the thing was, all the people might be jealous of you. The whole town would have to be jealous of you. Well, the thing was, I was under the age, uh, legal age, to drink the whiskey, of course. Um, so every six months, when the we got our free bottles of whiskey, I had to get a letter from HR signed by my mum mm. to say that I wouldn't drink it. Okay. Uh, so that's how I started it. Morangies. That was my illustrious career. So what you were doing, though, is that kind of same as the same as when people do like wine tasting and wine sniffing? S- similar but faster okay. uh, because you might be sniffing a couple of hundred casks of whiskey at a time. Um, so you're, you're, it's the similar but very, very fast. You and can make yeah, instant like decisions. Out some kind of weight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to do that pretty often. You got to eat, eat um, you know, crackers. You got to drink some water um, to try and clear that out. But yeah, you do a couple of hundred in a row. Um, so you got to be pretty quick. Yeah. at that so it's not like tasting wine where you can sit there for 10 minutes and yeah. swirl it around and stick it up to your snout for a while <laughs> you know uh, when in our job you had to be pretty fast and yeah. you had to make some instant decisions so so what's some of your favorite now is the proper term Scottish whiskey Scotch whiskey Scotch yeah whiskey. Scottish whiskey. you can call it Scottish whiskey um, so whatever you want to call it really as long as you say double before it nobody cares okay <laughs> and what, like, what's some of your favorite ones right now Oh man, see, I, I'm still faithful to the old brand. Glenmorangie are okay. doing some great whiskies at the moment. Um, okay. They're really, you know, pretty experimental. Um, and uh, I still collect whiskey. I've got a pretty good collection of Glenmorangie whiskey mm-hmm. and a few others as well. But I'll tell you what has surprised me over the last few years has been Japanese whiskey. Okay. Um, Japanese whiskey is really yeah, coming to really like. I can't think of the name of it. It kind of like a kind of a screw up funky bottle. It's like yellow. Yeah. Uh, Santori, I don't know. Oh, Santori, yeah, 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 Santori, yeah, 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 like yeah, yeah. There's some great whiskies coming out of uh, Japan, and actually some India whiskies as well are pretty good. Um, I, I, you know, people back home are going to be, you know, pretty mad with me now. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, there's some really great whiskies coming out from all over the place. To be honest, and even even the US, you know, even some bourbon, you know, is uh, is pretty good to my taste now. So, so what is there different? I'm sure there's a difference between like Scotch whiskey and whiskey here in the United States. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. One's got an E in it for a start. Um, that's okay. Because, yeah, so, <laughs> so um, but yeah, it's a, it's a slight, it's a similar process, but slightly different ingredients. Okay. Um, also, the um, the way you fill the casks, whether it's a fresh cask or a used cask, um, which you know changes the flavor, uh, also determines whether or not it's you know bourbon versus you yeah. can use it for scotch or you can use Tennessee mash. There's various combinations of it, um, but but yeah, there's a bit of a difference um but you know i'm i'm coming around to bourbon i have to say do like people who are like connoisseurs or scotch whiskey kind of look down yeah united states whiskey yeah yeah, yeah sure, absolutely yeah. yeah absolutely so it used to be back in the day when um when i was at the morning apartment one of my jobs over the six years i was there uh i got a great job title you know uh, i was the the wood controller uh which is a great job title you wouldn't get away with that in the u.s um but that was, you know, looking after the wood, the cask population for the company. Um, and, uh, you know, you kind of learn a lot about, you know, how the wood is air dried and then used for bourbon for three years and then emptied and then shipped to Scotland and we use it for whiskey. So I always looked at bourbon as being the, the kind of detergent that cleaned out the cask before we used it for whiskey. Uh, but as I say, I am coming round to bourbon uh, uh, more so now that I'm in the US. Now, one thing I find in the United States, like I know people in Kentucky, they like, it's only bourbon is made in Kentucky, right? Right, right. We have like you know other bourbons in Indiana, yeah. Utah. Like- yeah. Bourbon too. Right, there's there's a there's one just down the street here, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like them. I yeah, like 
Yeah, there's some, there's, there's, there's some, there's, you know, the thing with a lot of these places, whether you're making gin, whether you're making whiskey, you know, the thing is you get, you spend a bit of time on it, you get the right ingredients, you put a bit of love into it, you're going to get a good product, right? You're going to get something reasonable. Yeah. Um, you know, and as I say, there's kind of craft distilleries that are kind of popping up all over the place. Um, you know, there's some really great stuff coming out of them. Is there a, uh, correct way or a proper way to drink Scots whiskey? Yeah, yeah, again, um, we can be a bit snobbish about that, right? Um, so, you know, always drink your whiskey with some water in it. Okay, okay. room temperature water, always put some in there. Uh, whiskey was never designed to be you know, drank at, you know, 43%, which is it is most of the time in the US. It was never designed to be drunk at that strength. It's supposed to be less than that. Um, and you get better, much better flavor. So, you know, anyone out there who thinks I'm being kind of sacrilegious trust me just try one with some water in it room temperature no don't put any ice in it goodness sake don't go near it with ice um but uh yeah do that and you're going to get a very very different experience of drinking whiskey okay next conor mcgregor's proper 12 is that a decent whiskey, good whiskey, or is it yeah. all brand name? Yeah, it's it's pretty decent. Okay. Anything I would say, you know, I, you, with with Scotch whiskey, anything with an age statement on it, mm. you can't really go wrong. Okay. okay. Right. Things that don't have an age statement, eh, you know, well, they're trying to hide, right? Okay. Um, so even things like Johnny Walker, some of those Johnny Walkers don't have an age statement. I tend to steer clear of those. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, anything you anything with an age on it and anything that's, you know, uh, I would say unpronounceable um, <laughs> is, is also pretty good. Go for those ones. <laughs> and I'm guessing the, the market for Scots whiskey in Scotland is like pretty competitive. Sort of like a lot of people doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of people doing it. And actually, recently, there's been a lot of distilleries, you know, back in the kind of 50s, 60s, 70s, a lot of distilleries closed, a lot of them merged with bigger companies. And what we're actually seeing over the last 10, 12 years is a lot of those distilleries actually opening back up again. Um, so you got again, you're getting some of these great new craft distilleries uh, coming from nowhere, and it's really good to see. Problem with whiskey, of course, is you can't call it Scotch whiskey um, for three years. It's going to be in a cask for three okay. years. So what the hell do you do uh, for the three years when you're waiting for this stuff to mature, right? And that's why a lot of people start making gin alongside whiskey because gin, of course, you can distill and sell right away. You don't have to uh, age it. So you get a lot of these distilleries start doing gin alongside the whiskey. And then after three years, they do their first release. Three years is a bit young uh, for whiskey, but um, you get a few more in. It's going to be pretty good. So you made me think of something. This is a funny story. So my best friends, right, all life, right? We're all together. We're friends since then. He, he, he was like a big ginger, gin, big ginger, right? Okay. His favorite gin was Bombay. Okay. You know why? Why? Because the bottle was blue. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> like, are you fucking kidding me right now, dude? That's it? Yeah. Because the bottle was blue. Yeah. There you go. Uh. Like, how do we do this? Like, 10, 15 years? Like, come on now. You're smarter than this. Uh, okay. And you haven't moved off the blue bottle. Okay, fair enough. I'll yeah. find what you like, it was right? It hilarious. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I find a lot of people say, oh, I don't like Scotch whiskey. I can't mm. drink whiskey, you know? Mm. And I always challenge people to say, well, it just means you haven't found the right one. Yeah. And I accept your challenge. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the, the England, UK, like, how do people go around? Like, is like trains go from place to place, public transportation, you have to take a boat. How do people get around? Yeah, straight like train's pretty popular, uh, although you know, increasingly, I would say unreliable and, and expensive, actually. Um, but most people drive uh, UK in, you know, England, Scotland, Wales, certainly all very, very drivable, right? Okay. Um, 
again, it's kind of weird coming to the US because, you know, in the US, we wouldn't think anything about driving hour and a half, two hours at a weekend to go do something. In the UK, you would never, like two hours drive is like, oh my God, that's a, you know, it's an expedition, right? Yeah. Uh, that needs a lot of planning. Um, my family are always- Here's a one day trip. Right, exactly. Yeah, Right, you don't think of it, right? I drive for an hour and 40 minutes from the office to the airport, right? And I don't think anything of it. Of course, back in the UK, that's a, you know, as I say, a major expedition for folks. So, um, and I, I, it's kind of weird now seeing it from the US side. You think, wow, I could have went to some great places if I'd had that attitude back then, you know? I could have done a lot of good trips over the weekend. You tend not to do that. Yeah. So what made you decide to become an entrepreneur? Well, it turns out I'm not a very good employee. Uh, I think that's the reality. As I say, it started in my first job when I got fired um, for, for being a disruptive influence on the production line. And, you know, I think I'll kind of take this opportunity to uh, kind of apologize to, uh, you know, previous bosses. Uh, I think I was a pretty poor employee. Uh, I just kind of challenge everything and uh, want to do my own thing. I've been wanting to run my own company for quite a while, uh, probably for like 10 or 15 years. But the reality was I had no idea what I was going to do. Was I going to sell stuff, make stuff, do stuff? You know, I had no idea. Um, but to be honest, you know, about five years ago, the idea really started kind of, you know, coming clear in my head about what that was going to look like. And it really is just the 30 years of experience that I have both in the business side and the technology interest that I have really combining together to come to what we're generated here now at Silverdale. Um, and I think it's a really kind of combination of 30 years of learning um, that, uh, that we're now employing. So. Talk about this. There's a stereotype, you know, startup founders like 24, 25, right out of college, you know, right out of Stanford, you know, freshman year ago. But the reality is most CEOs and founders of tech startups and small companies are like our age, right? Yeah. Can you talk about the disconnect in reality? Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think it was, what's interesting is... Um, it depends on the kind of sector you're kind of aiming for, right? Um, I tend to, and again, it's a very big generalization, but my target audience for what we do is not the Googles of the world. It's not the, you know, glass offices in the middle of downtown. That's not really who I'm targeting. I'm not looking for a big payday at the end. I'm not looking for an IPO. I'm not, I'm not looking to do any of that stuff, right? The reality is that what we're doing is very quiet behind the scenes, working with smaller probably family-run businesses in a lot of cases as well. We're just not, I don't think we're chasing the same thing in reality. And I think that's an age thing, you know? I guess if I had the gumption to do this when I was 25, I might have done something differently. But in my time of life, this is it's, it's not what it's about anymore. So you're telling a CEO founder, chief evangelist. Yeah. Why do you add on that chief evangelist? Well, because I'm pretty passionate about what I do, right? Um, and I think all of my clients would agree with that. When I spend time on site with our clients, really learning about their business, and we've got clients in all sorts of different diverse businesses. We've got nonprofits. Uh, we've got a you know botanical garden who's a client of ours. We've got a printing company. We've got a company that does herbal supplements. We've got a client who does um, you know. Um, uh, uh, food products, we've got clients who do financial products, uh, you name it, we, right across the, the spectrum. But when I'm with them, I can explain to them how good the technology can be to help release the potential of their business. And I'm really passionate about that. Uh, it's one of the big reasons why I started Silverdale. So going back in time, right when you start, first started a company, right? 
talk about a challenge you had back then, like like you really struggled with it, but now you're like, what in the hell? Like well, that should be so easy for me to fix. But you actually struggled with it. <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, when I think back to the first days of Silverdale, um, uh, which is three and a half years ago now, um, I remember sitting in my shared office space uh, and sitting in the office looking at my computer screen, kind of day one of the company going, okay, uh, now what? I know, waiting for the phone. Come on, phone, ring. <laughs> you know, what's going on? Um, why, why don't I have any business? Suddenly, you know, uh, so that for me, we took a little while to learn that actually just getting a website and getting a name, getting a logo. And I spent a ton of time on that sort of nonsense, right? And getting all that right and getting, and it, you, the reality is nobody cares about the logo, right? Apart from me, okay? And that's why actually we scrapped the logo after the first few months and we went with a very simple, just our name, right? Uh, and no more complicated than a line in between it. Um, Cause yeah, I, it took me a while to learn that, but hey, the only person who cares about the logo is me, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, actually, that's a very good point. I know a lot of people spend way too much time oh. to myself on the logo. Oh, I was the same. I, absolutely the same. I, I went through three, four different designs and working with a designer and uh, and branding and coloring and, and uh, you know, nobody cares apart from me, you know. <laughs> so how do you all find your customers? Yeah. So uh, finding customers, actually, what's really interesting recently, I don't know what's happened on our um, on our Google search results. So I'm not an SEO person. Maybe somebody out there can you know, get in touch about that. But um, recently, locally in the Seattle, kind of northern Washington area, uh, we've been getting a lot of clients just proactively reaching out to us because of a search um, on local kind of uh, Odoo partners, which is what we are. Um, so that that's become you know pretty big for us actually. Yeah, we've probably landed half a dozen clients just in the Seattle area in just the last couple of months. Wait, wait, come to Nixon Ride, right? You do stuff Nixon Ride. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We're nationwide. In fact, on Sunday, I'm heading off to Pennsylvania for a client. We've got a go live on Monday uh, with them. So oh, that's customer service. The actual CEO is going to take care. Oh, of absolutely. That's, yeah. That's customer service. Well, that's 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 part of the chief evangelist, right? Is you know, I liked like we've got 35 people in Silverdale now, right, in the company, but. I still, I'm still the person who goes out and does the day one go live, right? I'm still the person who goes out in advance of the go live to help the client walk through the processes and what it's gonna look like. Um, and it's really important for me, again, the types of companies that we work with tend to be, I would say, between the five and 50 employee size. So you tend to find that I'm working directly with the CEO, the founder, the family member, the wife, the husband uh, of the founder. That's the people I'm working with. And so what I, what I find is by being there on site, you really build that personal connection. Um, and I think if you're really chasing that market, that size of customer, um, People buy from people, oh, yeah. right? They don't buy from businesses when you're like that, right? And you can't do that if you're remote, right? And that's one of the things I think that sets us apart in what we do, in fact, um, is that we do spend time getting to know our clients, not just virtually and on on, and on Teams calls, we do that as well, but actually being there on site, on the production floor, right? In the warehouse, right? Um, makes a huge difference in what we do. There's one for you. So, you know, I think it's a good idea you're doing that. However, comma, do you think you're still doing that yourself because you don't want to give it up yet? Yes, absolutely. Uh, oh, without a doubt. Um, I spend about half of my time traveling with and being in front of clients. Okay. Am I ready to give it up yet? No, definitely not, right? Should I be still doing it? 
Yeah, up for debate. Yeah, up for, I would say up for debate, and I and I would say. Um, Is anyone you take along with you that you like, kind of start grooming? Yeah, we're start, we're absolutely starting to do that. In fact, this week we had another go live this week with a client um, in the north of Seattle. I didn't go this week. Actually, Erin, who uh, is part of my team, um, she actually went up there. And actually, she and I had a good conversation yeah. today. She actually said to me, hey, I really enjoyed it. And now I can see exactly why you do this, yeah. right? And, I, and I've learned so much about the client by being on site and being in the cold face. She's, she's, you know, just learned so much by doing it. I, mean, I was really Zoom, pleased with that. Zoom is fine, but man, there's nothing like in person. Oh, man, I tell you, when we start, God, we couldn't have started the company at the worst time, best time, because yeah. we started Silverdale. And then six months after we started the company, of course, of course, we didn't have any clients back then either right um uh, lockdown happened and we weren't traveling anywhere right so i didn't we didn't have a choice but to figure out how to do it remotely right and you know for the first year and a half i would say we just weren't traveling to clients you know one it was lockdown but two then clients were obviously very nervous about people coming in and and then traveling was such a pain you know um so for the first, you know, I'd say probably the first year and a half, we had to figure out how you do this remotely. And what was really interesting about that is when I look back on the first year and a half of the company versus I would say the last year and a half of, of, of Silverdale, what a difference, right? Again, this personal, in-person, face-to-face, actually on the production floor, looking at the product, looking at the process, what a difference it's made to our implementations. And I'll be honest, we lost a couple of clients in the first year and a half, right? Because, you know, doing it remotely just was not the best way to do it, right? It was not the optimum way to do it. And we made some mistakes back then. Um, but now now we're face-to-face with clients again. I think we've definitely had that kind of hockey stick of uh, performance just by simply by being on site. I, don't, I, I just don't know any other way of doing it, right, apart from being there. And you have like 34, 35 people working for you? Yeah, yeah. Most of most of our people are based in Pakistan, okay. uh, which is where our development center is. It's where we base um, our QA development and also our business analysts. Most of them are based in Islamabad. But we also have uh, an office we just opened this year in Mexico City. Uh, we've got three people down in Mexico City and I also have uh, one person out in Bahrain as well. Um, so we're a pretty international company now. So why do you pick... The country of Pakistan instead of all the other options out there. Yeah, so that's a good, great question. So, um, whenever you're starting something like like we were doing, um, you know, the reality was a lot of the companies we work for, they're not going to spend. on what we do, right? Which is what you'd have to spend if you wanted the people solely in the US, if not more than that, right? So we had to find a way of kind of balancing the on-site stuff that we've talked about, but also making sure we get good value for money by having kind of offshore resources. So why Pakistan? Well, because I knew someone in Pakistan that I knew and trusted, okay, that I'd worked with. That's a big reason to Ah, It was number one reason, quite frankly, right? Because there's no way I could have done that. Um, you know, doing it 100% remote. So having someone that's trusted there physically in, 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 in the country was incredibly important. But having said that, our kind of business model when we first started, um, we were going down the same approach as every other ERP, you know, smaller ERP partner does, which was have a few people in the US, sell a ton of stuff, outsource everything to a third party, you know, and, you know, count, count, the, count the cash, right? That was our idea. That's what everybody else does. We thought, oh, well, that's what everybody else does. I thought, well, I'll do the same, right? That's how it, that's how it works. The reality was very, very different. Um, 
we started doing that. We got a first couple of clients, started doing the projects using some third party developers and other companies. And what a disaster. Um, you know, after the first three months, you know, uh, Afsal, who's my um, uh, general manager out in Pakistan, it, we just looked at each other, okay, this is stupid, right? We're just doing this all wrong. Uh, we don't have the level of control. We can't, we don't know what people are working on. We can't get priority. We can't give proper updates. So we said, okay, stop. If we're going to do this. Let's do it right. So I said to him, go find me an office, go put people in it. Okay, go find some people, go put them in our building, let's train them, let's put them into our way of working. And, you know, since we made that decision, we haven't looked back. Uh, we started with, you know, we hired a couple of developers in that small office and within six months, we had to move out of that office because we, we'd outgrown it. Uh, so we're so in, your guy in Pakistan oversees all the day-to-day operations? Yeah, in Pakistan, absolutely, yeah. So we now have a couple of people. Um, I've got three directors now, okay, one responsible for sales, uh, one for product, and uh, and the consulting side, and then Afsal now runs the technical side of the business, which is really the development and QA um, part of the business. How often do you go to Pakistan? So I've been out once. once. Um, I was out in January this year again because of COVID. It just didn't happen. Um, it was kind of weird starting up a company and employing a lot of people and working with them day to day, and never actually met them face to face. It was kind of weird. Um, and I was out in January with the team. Spent a good uh, three weeks with the team out there and had a, a really great time with them and you know it was, it was great to be able to connect with them in person again similar to being with clients being with the team face to face there's nothing like it yeah. right uh, absolutely nothing like it yeah I think most average Americans don't have a warm perception of Pakistan they think it's like a desert but when right. I was in the army I had to go to, had to, go to office school right okay. and we, we, an army, US brings like officers from different nations and one of them was from Pakistan right and he shows the pictures like this is Pakistan. Like we had no idea. We thought like desert wasteland, like mounds, creeks. Oh wow. yeah. I was like, yeah. this is beautiful. Where, where's this at? We'll see. You'll see this on the news. Yeah. He said, yeah. It's actually a very beautiful country. Yeah, we're we're based in Islamabad, um, and it's a beautiful city. You know, it's a you know, like every city in the world, right? Um, there's some good parts and some bad parts, right? But I tell you, it's surrounded by hills. It's got you know, uh, it's a really great architecture, and you know, I have to say, really great people. I had a great time in Pakistan. Um, just the hospitality is just incredible, um, and you know, uh, as we sit here, just in the last couple of days, but of course, there'd be more political trouble and. Uh, Islamabad and the rest of the city, uh, country, which is yeah. a shame, quite frankly, right? Because you find, again, the people I'm working with, interacting with on a day-to-day -day basis, just, just again, like everybody, they just want to get on with their lives, right? Yeah. They want to make money. They want to do stuff for their family. They want to make a better life, right? And it's just a real shame that, you know, they're not able to do it. We ever do any, like, uh, quote-unquote tourist stuff while you were there? Yeah, we did a little bit, yeah. So we spent the weekend out. We went, uh, did some uh, did some activities at the weekend, did some um, parasailing, which was fun. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've never done <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, I'm not exactly the right build for parasailing as well. It was a very powerful boat they had to use. Um, but that was good fun. Um, and, yeah, we got some kind of good relaxation time with the team um, and some really great hospitality, as I say. So I had a really good time out there. So I have to ask, when you were getting ready to go on the trip, people in your family, your friend, like, Oh, my mother was beside herself uh, when I told her I was going, uh, you know, she has the, you know, find my iPhone, find my friends thing on the phone, you know, uh, I, I can just imagine her sitting there every five minutes refreshing the screen to say where I was. Uh, but yeah, a lot of people were kind of apprehensive about that. I have to say I wasn't, you know, having worked with the team closely for a long time. Uh, so I really, you're going to take care of you. Uh, oh, 100%. You know? 
you know, 100%. And, you know, I, I, I tell you, I've felt, you know, much more unsafe, I would say, uh, in a lot of cities all around the world they wouldn't think of. Uh, of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Okay. Um, and I didn't feel unsafe in Islamabad, not even once, you know. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it was a really great city, really great, full of great people. So another dumb question. A question the answer is Pakistani food, but what is Pakistani food? Like? Well, it's really interesting because, yeah, that, you know, that isn't that a dumb question at all, right? Because what I think a lot of people, kind of, certainly in the UK, I would say, um, what a lot of people see as kind of Indian food is actually Pakistani food, okay. right? Um, and there's a, a lot of crossover there as well. Of course, you know, back in the history, there were, you know, there weren't uh, two separate nations. Yeah, so so like, it's not a big surprise, right? Yeah. There'd be there very big. like 25,000 right. different tribes. <laughs> exactly, right? So, um, so the food, you know, a, a lot of meat, uh, a lot of vegetables, though, a lot, a lot of rice. Um, but uh, really, really not. I, I would say the big surprise for me was it wasn't so much spicy, hot, spicy, chili, spicy. Definitely not. But just tasty, you know, really good, tasty, spicy food. Right. Um, and I, I, yeah, I, I liked all the food I had. I, uh, I was laughing uh, with my husband when I came back that we at the weekend we went out to this um this event place to do some uh, activities and there was a meal at the end and they were a little bit worried about what I was going to eat uh-huh. um, and they had specially organized a cheeseburger and fries for me <laughs> and I was like oh wow okay uh, well I really appreciate the thought you know but I'm just wondering how the hell did you get a hold of a cheeseburger and fries in the middle of nowhere you know when everybody else was eating this great you know um, local food which I, honestly I was really enjoying yeah. and then suddenly this this cheeseburger and fries arrived and I was like what the hell <laughs> what happened yeah, <laughs> great jest great jest oh, yeah. Don't get me wrong, but but it's just like ah, you know, wow. It's, <laughs> I'm not missing it that much. <laughs> yeah. So off subject, often sometimes wish you know how way back in the day, World War One, World War Two, or the case would be where these people like divide India, Pakistan up, divide Middle East, all these different things. That was best for them. Like we can bring them back to life and like, hey, you you what, look what you messed up, right? Oh yeah. Like, like you need to fix this, like some kind of accountability, right? Because it's like yeah, it was just ridiculous. I, I tell you, as a well as a. British person traveling around the world, I do find myself apologizing a lot, yeah. you know, for my ancestors. And, you know, we, we left a lot of the world in a much worse position than we found it, quite frankly. Um, you know, and just even just look at what's happening, you know, in Hong Kong, just look at what's happening in, you know, India and Pakistan, of course, as well. And, you know, there's, God, there's probably dozens of examples where that's happened. Um, yeah. so but you just like made a decision, didn't think about long term repercussions or just arbitrary lines drawn on a map because yeah, it makes people live for hundreds of thousands of years. Who put these other people in here? Oh, I, I, you know, I'm just drawing a line on that map in a conference room somewhere, right, as a political I negotiation. No, that's it. Splitting families right, right down the middle, you know. I, I still get stories from my team, you know, talking about their family who, you know, still have people over the border in India they haven't met for, you know, years and there's, you know, cousins and aunties and uncles, etc. they've never met because, guess what, somebody, you know, 60 years ago decided to draw a line on a map, you know. Uh, it's crazy. They drew the line on a map when I had the tea and then they were done with the party of thought again that's it exactly right they all moved on right I know the India Pakistan board that's an interesting place right because I have you seen when they do like that ceremony every day yes I mean it's like I wish I could see that in person it's like yeah. really I want to say outlandish but like really highly ceremonial right Right. Like really like show showy and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think they try and outdo each other yes. uh, every day on that uh, that border crossing. I know the one you're talking about. Um, but but as I say, you know, 
you know, I, I traveled in a lot of different countries. Uh, thankfully, uh, around the world, I've been pretty lucky to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and no matter where you go, you tend to find, at least the people I've met, um, everybody just wants to get on with their lives, right? They don't care about the politics. They don't care. You know, it's never the majority of people who care about that stuff, right? It's a real shame, right? Yeah. In a lot of different places. I know I follow this one guy, I saw some, I can't remember his name, but he was like, those are different countries and travels. Like, 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 danger country. One time he did like Honduras for several weeks, no, seven days, I mean. And it was like, where you say are so peaceful, people living their lives, like, there was no like murders or scandal stuff or people leaving, like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's funny. My husband and I were actually just talking the other day about um, Costa Rica. You know, we're actually saying, right, beautiful place, very stable country. And we're actually saying, well, I wonder if it's such a stable country because it doesn't have a military. You know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, maybe maybe they're onto something there. You know, I'm not saying, you know, all militaries are bad there, but I'm just saying, what a strange coincidence, you know, that actually we don't have one, you know, then hmm, it's a very different way of working, right? It is. I think there was only a few countries that don't have a military. Yeah, exactly. It's very few, right? Yeah. Very, very few. It's the only one I can think of, actually. (laughs) So I found this somewhere. It says, um, adjusting your company to properly deal with digital transformation doesn't mean just preparing for new technology. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, oh yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. So, what what we're really talking about there is really uh, the project work that we do. We talk about ERP, right? Most people in our industry don't even know what the hell an ERP is. We're just talking about all the business systems um, that you can use to manage all parts of your business. Now, what people tend to mistake people tend to make is that they assume it's a technology project. That's the problem, right? So they give that type of project to their head of IT or their computer person if they're a smaller company. And they think that that's good enough, right? It's just like installing, you know, Office 365 or Outlook on someone's desktop, right? They see it as an IT project. And that is one of the biggest mistakes um, because it's not about the technology. The reality is whether you're doing Odoo, whether you're doing SAP, whether you're doing Oracle, guess what? Someone spent a lot of time, effort, and money building the technology already. That is not the, the job here that you're trying to do. What you're actually trying to do is get the people and the processes to work with the technology. And that's actually where all the hard work is, right? It's never the, the technology is never the problem. It's the process and the people that are always the problem. So how do you convince a company like to change the process to make it better? You know, a lot of people, I've done this for 20 years, I'm, I'm profitable enough. How do you make them change their mind? Well, one of the ways we do that is, uh, so one of our ways of working is making sure we keep people in the standard system as much as we can. Um, and part of that is about showing them the benefit of doing exactly that. A lot of the companies we go to have got proprietary systems that they've been building for the last 10, 15, even 20 years, right? Um, and the reality is they're stuck on them, right? They can't get off them because, you know, the developer who developed it is now retired or gone somewhere and they can't find someone to maintain the damn thing, right? Um, so a lot of the times that's what we're up against, right? Um, and so what we do for, for our clients is say, look, implement this as standard as possible. And guess what? In two years' time, I'm going to come back and I'm going to upgrade you to the next version for free. 
Now, I can only do that if I keep you in the standard solution, right? If you're going to start changing this, changing that, changing the other, right? And I can't upgrade you in two years' time because you're going to be too customized, right? And there's so many companies out there that have ended up in that position, right? Where it's just too expensive to upgrade, too expensive to move off it. And that's a real shame because, you know, again, part of our philosophy as a company, and set again, and it's part of my 30 years of doing this, the reality is 80% of what a company does is no different to the company next door and the one across the street, right? You buy stuff, you sell stuff, okay? You send invoices, you pay your vendor bills, you want a P&L and you want a balance sheet. Guess what? So does everybody else, okay? So if that really, if those things aren't really distinguishing you as a company, and the reality is they probably aren't, right? Don't focus on that stuff, right? Just do it the standard way. Do it our way, okay? Get through all that, and then guess what? Now we can focus on the 20% of your business, right, that really stands you apart from your competition, the stuff that makes you you, okay? Don't focus on the format of the P&L report. Why do you care, right? <laughs> Okay, get off that, right? Get the standard one done, and then let's come back and talk about the 20% that makes you unique and it's going to make you stand out amongst your competition. I've found too many people, right? Even founders, CEOs of companies that want to tinker with things that are completely irrelevant, right? And spend time, effort, money. And guess what? There's companies out there that will do that and take your money, right? But you'll get no benefit at the end of it. So, when you go to a company, your experience has it been. I'll bring it up. There's a senior leadership of the company to include CEO, and there's people actually doing the work. Yeah. Have you found one of them was like more apt to change, or one that's more resistant to change? Um, that's a really good question, um, and I would say it's actually sometimes it's the senior people who are much more reluctant. Okay. Um, what's interesting is you initially it might appear that the folks actually doing to the work are much more resistant, okay? But when you get under the skin of that, what I've found is it's not that they're resistant to change, okay? It's not that they're saying, oh, I've always done it like that. It's, that's not the case. What it tends to be is I'm far too busy to change, okay? I'm far too busy working the old way. I can't even conceive of this new way that you're talking about. Yeah, and they're like, like all I can do is if I get paid overtime. See, I was like, I'm not paying no one any overtime. Figure out the four hours of work for me. Right, it doesn't. It doesn't work like that, right? And so when you actually spend time with people at their you know workspace, watching what they're doing, and then showing them, hey, what about if we did it this way? What do you think, right? Um, and when you actually spend time really learning with them and engaging with them, then you know pretty quickly they'll push you out the way and want to try it themselves, right? And that's the best position for us to get into, right? Is getting people in a position where they want this change to happen to them, right? Uh, and be involved in that. We, again, when we when we engage with a client, not unusual for it to start at that C-level, right? They're the people who make the first call. They're the people we talk to right out, out of the gate. But again, it's another reason why we like to get on site. The first thing we start with is, Show me what you do, right? Where does where does the work happen, but, right? No, what do you really do? Exactly. Where does the work what's happen? The I know what the paper says. <laughs> I know right. your boss thinks you do. What do you really do? I, I, oh yeah, <laughs> and that that's always Show enlightening. Oh, absolutely, that's always enlightening. We try we try and move very quickly to engaging with the people who do the work, 
right? Um, there's the old adage says, if you're going to change me, involve me, right? And that's one of the things we try and get to very, very quickly is the people who are actually going to have to do the thing in the different way have to be involved as early as possible. You'd be surprised, you know, uh, I had one implementation right back in the early days of Silverdale where I turned up for the uh, first day of go live, uh, went down to the warehouse shop floor, went to the receiving station and uh, said to the guy, and I said, great, are you ready for uh, day one of Odoo? And he looked at me as if I had three heads and like, what, what is Odoo? And I'm like, oh my goodness, well, what, what have I walked into here, <laughs> right? What's happened here? And again, because it got stuck, the communication got stuck, the change got stuck. And it was really that middle management, not, not through malice, right? But that middle management, that kind of concrete middle that we just hadn't broken through. And that was, again, a big learning for us that we have to engage with the people, with the users as quickly, early as possible, right? Um, and involve them as early as possible because they're, they're the ones who really know how it works. You speak to a CEO, it's like, oh, that only happens once every couple of months. Then you speak to the person who does it, it's like, oh my God, that happens all the time, right? Every day I have to like do this, this thing. That's it, just because he doesn't see it, it's because I'm fixing it right? every day. And, and so, yeah, you've really got to get to under the skin of the thing. And you can only do that, again, if you can engage with people on a one-to-one basis at their workspace, right? You pull somebody off a production floor, right? Um, or out a call center, you stick them in a conference room, you put PowerPoint up on the screen and you say, what do you think of the new system? They're all gonna go, yeah, it looks all right, right? Okay, that doesn't do anything for you, right? What, what good's that, right? You're taking somebody out of their, you know, their environment, which they actually are gonna have to use the damn thing, right? You're taking them out of that comfortable environment, putting them in an environment as an alien, and then you're asking them to make decisions on what it's gonna look like. It's silly, right? You really think about it it's a bonkers way to do it right instead of going to the shop floor and standing next to the person at the machine right who's got the piece of paper you know no go to the machine let me show you my ipad hey look at what you're doing on that piece of paper hey look at how you could do this on an ipad what do you think right okay doing that and engaging with people that way and getting their ideas and input you know, it doesn't mean that we're going to change it based based on the the input of the user, right? And that's what a lot of middle managers are really concerned about, right? Is oh my god, they don't really know the process. They're going to change things. That's not how it's supposed to get done, right? But the reality is, this is how things are actually done, right? And that's where we've got to engage. So, when you go visit a client, like how many days do you stay there? Uh, so next week I'm traveling Sunday because uh, the go live is 8 a.m. Monday. I'll be there uh, four days. I'll be flying back Thursday night. So generally speaking, it's about four days is what I try and do, try and cut down the travel and at least be home and try and stay married at least for a bit longer. Um, so, yeah, I try and do at least three or four days, three days minimum. You don't learn anything in less than three days. You can't just go in for an hour and sit in the conference room and drink coffee and leave again, right? Uh, you don't learn anything apart from how good the coffee is. Um, but actually being there on the shop floor, you know, arriving in the morning at the same time as the as the rest of the workers, right? And, that, you know, even walking in the same door as the workers, you can see how do they clock in, right? It's something as simple as that, right? Which is one of the things that we implement for clients, right? Is clocking in, clocking out. Something as simple as that. Well, if you don't walk in the same door as the people who are clocking in and clocking out, how are you ever going to find out how that happens, right? And so you've really got to engage at that level. There's no point engaging in the conference room. That's not where the work is done. Yeah, the company ever told you, like, I appreciate you want to come visit us, but like, you'll be in the way. Yes, don't come. You'll be in the way. This dude's all over Zoom. Um, uh, not that they've said it to my face. <laughs> um, now, not, not that they've said it to my face, at least. Um, I don't think so. Uh, I would say that we, 
when I'm on site with a client, I try and embed myself as much as I can. Like I, I, I will, I, I will be on the shop floor and I'll put boxes on a pallet and I'll stick labels on a pallet and I'll go and help them to label up the locations and get the barcoding going and all that sort of stuff. You know, I'll you know roll my sleeves up. I don't wear sleeves very often, but you know, I, I can do all that and I will do all that. Okay, again, to really just build that relationship and that rapport with the people that I'm going to need on site to actually make the thing happen. So tend to kind of respect people workspace and get out the way when you need to, when they need to get on with stuff absolutely you know good example of that is you know uh you know part of our ways of working as a company you know even on our conference calls for example we never do conference calls for 30 minutes we never do conference calls for an hour ever okay our conference calls are always 25 minutes and 50 minutes why because the client is like us right they're moving from one call to the next and if you don't give people five minutes in between to grab a coffee or to go to the bathroom right they're going to be late for the next one right and so that's why we set some standards that say hey we never do 30 minute meetings we never do one hour meetings why because it's respectful okay (laughs) you're giving people five minutes to go do stuff that you need to go do right and so that's part of a kind of our ways of working is is a very respectful but what i would also say is a very challenging way of working with us right is that we will challenge and we don't just say yes okay um, we actually push back and say no why because i know in two years time that when i come to upgrade your system if i've spent a lot of time and effort tinkering with it i'm gonna have to tinker with the whole damn thing again in two years and it's going to cost me money that's our skin in the game as a company to make sure we don't go off down that mass customization route. Who's your perfect customer? Perfect customer, good question, right? So our perfect customer, I would say, is somewhere between 15 to 30 employees. There are probably around the, you know, 25 to $50 million revenue mark. They are making stuff, okay, or buying and selling stuff. Um, They may be a startup. We've done a lot of work with startups and we enjoy working with startups, quite honestly. Um, We actually find startups very engaging with us because they don't know what they're doing. They don't have a business process. So guess what? They're very eager to adopt our standard business processes because they don't have any yet. Um, so they're, they're great to work with. Um, we've done quite a bit of work in the startup space. Um, certainly, I would say people who make stuff, sell stuff, um, the physical world. And I think that's because I connect very well with that type of client in reality. Um, that you know, I've worked on production lines. I've worked in warehouses. I can engage with that. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't have we have clients in the financial space, telecommunication space. We have clients in the nonprofit space as well. Again, it's just about you know working with our clients and you know uh, on a people basis rather than a technology basis. You know, I'd say is uh, is what makes us stand out. But yeah, I, that kind of five to twenty five. You know, what I tend to find is that companies who only have a couple of people they want to customize everything. Okay, <laughs> those who have more than fifty people want to customize everything, right? Because they think they're too big and important to use standards, right? And it's that real group in the middle there, okay, uh, where you're not quite big enough to afford, you know, mass customization, but you know that you want to grow. That's the people who are great for us. They're in the great spot. Can you talk about your sales process? How your sales process works for you? Yeah, so our sales process, what most people who come to us already know they're looking for an ERP, okay? So, um, or they know they need something better than Google Sheets or Excel, right? Um, They've probably already done some research. um, So they've already, you know, looked at a couple of different systems and they're 
I would say almost settled on using the Odoo system, which is what we specialize in. Um, our, when they come to us, they're really looking for that experience, okay? Um, and so our sales process tends to be um, explaining to them how our standard implementation method works, okay? And really getting them to buy into this concept of use standard first, don't do the customization, use our business process library that we already have, okay? Um, and really walking them through the benefits of that and really getting them to rethink how they're, they're gonna buy this thing. Because the reality is what we do is so different to our competitors. They're probably talking to two or three other people, right? And they're looking, they think they're looking at the same thing, but actually they're really not looking at the same thing at all. Um, and so our our sales process really is about explaining how we work and how we get things done, right? Um, and once people get that, right? Um, we have a pretty good sales close rate, I have to say, right? Uh, once we, once people really engage with us and understand our process, you know, they understand that it's pretty unique. And what's the average sales for our cycles? Like two months, three months? Yes, I would, I would say two to three months is about average for us. Um, um, but we've got extremes on both sides. Our shortest cycle has been eight days uh, from first phone call to, uh, you know, uh, signing the deal. Uh, short is eight days. Uh, I have a sales cycle. In fact, we have a go live in a couple of weeks time with a client. Um, and the first conversation with them was three years ago, right? Um, uh, you know, sometimes people will investigate it. They'll go away, think about it. You know, they'll go look at the money, they'll go look at the cash flow, they'll go, you know, come up with the project and then they'll come back a few months later, kick the tires again. So it's a big, you know, it's a big decision for a lot of the companies we're working with. That's the reality, right? For for us, you know, it's project 196 or whatever number it is today, right? That's for us, it's our bread and butter. It's what we do. We're very confident in what we do. We've done it many, many times. We're very experienced in what we do. But for our clients, we have to remember this is probably one of the biggest decisions they'll make for a long time in their company, right? And probably one of the biggest financial decisions and commitments they'll make to as well, right? Uh, again, with so many horror stories out there, okay, uh, you know, Gartner, what was it? Gartner said that, you know, 80% of ERP implementations failed to meet their original objectives, right? You know, why, why would you even start a project, you know, when you've only got a one in five chance of being successful, right? Like if you're a small company and you're going to be paying $75,000, $100,000 on an ERP implementation and you've only got a one in five chance of being successful, would you? You might as well go bid some horses. Right, exactly, right? And, you know, you might as well go, you know, go, go, go buy a Subway franchise. You'll get a better return, right? Uh, so with us, it's really about, again, that personal connection to say, hey, we're with you. We're not going to let this thing fail, right? We've never failed yet, right? Um, and really making them see that, no, we're not just a come in, take your cash, here's your system, turn it on, off you go, and good luck, right? That's not what we do. We approach every client as if we're going to be with them for the next 20 years, which means we do the right thing, even when that means we have to go back and say, oops, we shouldn't have gone down that route. We need to go down this other route. We've done that before with clients where we've had to, we've done some customization. 
And after a few months, we've realized, you know, oops, that was not the right thing to do. And we've had to roll that back. And we have that very awkward conversation, okay, with a client that says, you know, we got this bit wrong. We're going to roll this back and we're going to do it again. Um, but I'd rather have that awkward conversation in the conference room, you know, uh, rather than in a year's time with the, you know, another you know, competitor of ours calls them just on that t wrong day when it all falls apart. Um, I, I, I never want to be in that position. So I'd much rather have that conversation, admit our mistakes and then do it again, right? How do you make your money? Like, the, do, do companies pay you per project, like a monthly fee, hourly rate? How does that work? Those are different. It's, it's actually different for each. Um, our preferred method is to do fixed price. Um, I, I think it's fairer for the client. I think it's fairer for us. It keeps us honest. Um, it keeps, it's our skin in the game as well, right? If I tell you, hey, it's going to take me 18 weeks and it's going to cost you $90,000, right? Okay, that's what it's going to be. Well, I've got to put my skin in the game that says it's going to be 18 weeks and $90,000, right? Um, a lot of our industry works on, you know, hourly or daily rates, okay? But that's the wrong way to be incentivized in this type of business, right? Because guess what? You get halfway through, it's like, oh, you didn't tell me about that thing. Oh, that's an extra week and it's an extra this and I mean, it's an what, extra. What's the joke of construction projects? Oh. You want to project last forever, paying by the hour. <laughs> right, exactly. And this ERP projects are exactly the same, right? Um, you know, it's always, oh, 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 and this, oh, and, and a little bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of that. And suddenly an 18-week project, suddenly a year later, you're still going. We've had clients, in fact, about, I'd say about 60% of our business that we have is what we call rescues, okay, where that's happened to someone, right? They've got so far down the road and it's just manana, 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 right? It's always jammed tomorrow and, you know, and people get so far in, hey, I'm already $100,000, $120,000 into this project. Like I can't stop. You feel, you know, it's like I'm so far into this thing that I, I got to keep going, right? But I just don't know where it's going to finish, yeah. right? And it's a real shame that a lot of companies get into that position, right? And I never want a client with us to be I, I to feel like that. Start like that, you know, they'll pay us. So it's coming like hundred thousand dollars. This is nowhere near what I asked for. Nowhere to agree to, and like you know, you keep on going the same company, right? Like, it's like it's a decision that's hard to make. Right, right. And, and I'll tell you right now that I will never do a $100,000 project, right? Never, right? Why? It's too big, okay? It's too big for us to, to comprehend. It's too big for the client to comprehend, right? I would much rather do four $25,000 projects, right? With very clear deliverables, with very clear, you know, um, you know, milestones as part of that and say, hey, first part, done. Great, fantastic. How are we all feeling? Are we ready for part two? Let's do it, right? Let's go. Right, let's do part two, part three, part four. I would much rather do that than a $100,000 project. Well, I think our industry sometimes calls kind of the big bang approach, right? The problem with the big bang approach, it does exactly that. It goes bang in a big way. And I never want to do those, right? I would much rather go live with this than in this thing than this thing and start building on that and building on that trust. Um, you know, that yeah, that, I, those $100,000 projects for me, even bigger than that, uh, my, man, they, they scare the living daylights out of me. I've seen them, right? I've worked with SAP implementations. I've worked with BPIX. I've worked with Microsoft Dynamics, the oracles of the world. And those projects, oh my goodness, now I never want to do another one of those as far as long as I live. How do you handle clients who will say like, you know, you don't know anything you need to do, everything you need to, but they're not happy with something for whatever reason, they're like either needy customers or like not happy with you. How do you handle that? 
Well, first of all, it's setting the expectation very clearly up front, okay, that these projects are painful, okay? I can't make it any less painful, okay? They are, right? They're disruptive. They take a long time. They're going to suck up a lot of your time and energy, okay? It's going to be disruptive on your day-to-day operations, right? Again, I, I'm upfront and honest with clients. I'm not going to come in and say it's, it's a bed of roses and it's all going to be fine and don't worry about it. We'll do everything for you. You know, you'll come in in the morning. It's all going to be there. It's all, you know... It's all going to be lovely. There's no point setting that expectation because it just isn't the reality, okay? And so we we spend a long time preparing our clients, okay, and making sure they're fully aware. Hey, like on Monday, I'm at my go live on Monday. Something's going to go wrong, okay? Something will go wrong on Monday, okay? I don't know what it will be, okay? I can do as much prep as I want. I can do as much planning as I want. I can do as many practice runs as we want on the transfer, but something will go wrong on Monday. What's important is for the client to know we're here, okay? We're not going anywhere. We're in it with you. I'm standing right next to you, okay? We're going to get this thing working. And so clients who kind of, a lot of our clients kind of get that, but it's very easy to forget when you're a couple of weeks into the go live and something's gone wrong. It can be very frustrating, especially when they've got their own customers, right, who are complaining. Um, so, you know, listening, being, you know, having great empathy for the client, giving them a realistic workaround, okay? Okay, we can't do it this way or like this. I tell you what, though, here's an alternative. Or what we've done previously for clients, again, because I have my team um, out in Pakistan, Sometimes we'll take on some of that work, right? So, for example, oh, my goodness, we've got to manually key this stuff because something, a connector is not working somewhere. Hey, don't you do it. I'll do it, right? I'll get two or three of my people on that for the next week, week until we figure it out. Hey, that's what we'll do, right? We'll make it happen, okay? And so, you know, we try and give the client options. Um, and honestly, some of it is about pushing back as well, right? And saying, hey, wait, whoa, wait a minute, right? <laughs> we told you this wasn't going to be plain sailing. Guess what? Here's the, here's the not plain sailing part okay um, let's just get through this keep the communication clear okay make the expectations clear up front I, I, I tell our clients that you know uh, working with us isn't like going to the ice cream shop okay right where this is a great experience from start to finish and you get something wonderful at the end right uh, you got to think about what we do in the projects that we just like going to the dentist right okay you got to do it you know you've got to do it okay it's going to be a great result after a few weeks okay but guess what it's going to be painful at the time right and it really is there's no point um, sugarcoating it has this ever happened where like you class sign up with you it's not that good, good match but then down the road, you're like, okay. I mean, they didn't lie to you, but like everything wasn't really told right and it's not a good match for your company. Like, how do you, like, I could ask the clients, like, how do you go about firing a client if you have to? Yeah, yeah, we've done that a couple of times. Uh, we have had to fire a couple of clients, okay? Um, some of it, some of it about match with us is about, you know, we have a very prescribed method of how we work, okay? Why? Well, first of all, it's based on 30 years of experience, okay? I've seen this thing many, many times, okay? I've seen this movie before, right? Um, I know how it ends. If it goes this way or if it goes that way, you got to trust us in our, in our, in our process. Where clients that really don't work for us is when they want to go outside of that process. So when a client says to us, for example, oh, I'm going to keep a log of all of our tasks in a Google Sheet and I need your team to update it. No, not going to happen. Okay, I already have the tool to do that. And that's where we do our tasks. Because guess what? You're one of 30 clients. So they're one of 30 projects I'm running right now. I can't run your project on something different. So either you work this way or I can't work with you. So some people see that as very... 
um, I would say very draconian, right? And we're very, very clear about how we work. But honestly, the way that we deliver, the uh, quality and the timelines that we've got to hit and the experience that we have and the success that we've had is because of those processes. And I'll tell you, without exception, every project that's gone sideways on us, right, is because we didn't follow our process, okay, right? Without a shadow of a doubt, it's when we've decided, oh, we're gonna do something slightly different for this client or slightly different over here, right? Without a doubt, those things are gonna go wrong. You've got to stick to your process, stick to your guns, right? So you know, for your sales process, how does it work like? How do your salespeople know who to reach out to? Because that's my saw, like there's no company out there saying, we need this done, right? Oh, no, 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 yeah, no one ever did that. Yeah, so, <laughs> so uh, a lot of our clients, as I say, are rescues, okay? What that means is that, you know, we will proactively reach out to people who are using the system saying, hey, how's it going, right? One of our entry-level products that we have um, is the uh, Odoo Audit, okay? Uh, which is a great product because it means that, you know, it doesn't matter where you are in your journey of uh, your ERP, we'll come and take a look at it for you, right? We'll, we'll shake the thing down. We'll go look at what versus our standards. What does your system look like? What does your project look like? And we'll give you an honest assessment at the end. It's a great product for us. It opens up a great conversation with the client. Just takes that uh, Odoo audit email to hit someone's inbox just on that day where they're having just enough issues um, for them to pick up the phone and say, hey, tell me more about this, right? Um, I can only think of one instance in the last three years where we've done an audit and then not won the client after uh, uh, after the audit, right? So an audit for us is very much an entry level product, um, but it gives the client you know something really tangible um, to say, okay, this is where I am. I know I know where I am is not good, but I just don't really know what it looks like right now. I don't know how to get out of here, right? Our audit is a really great way of doing that. It's a very small um, piece of work for us. In reality, um, it takes us about you know a week to ten days to turn this thing around. It's very affordable. It's only two thousand dollars. It's again, it's price right uh it's very clear deliverable and it's for our clients it's a really great way of them getting that kind of roadmap of what they need to do next what is a is it, is it called odoo what is odoo, the odoo yeah. process yeah so the so the odoo product is the core erp system that's built that that is already pre-built okay um you can go to it's something you all get yourself it's like something that everyone else uses too yeah well <laughs> that's a that's another good point so we one of our tenets as a company is we use the tools we sell. Okay, right. So we use Odoo. Odoo is a has a suite of uh, different applications within it. Right. One of them is CRM. Okay. Um, now, I'd be a complete hypocrite, right, if I go out and use Salesforce, for example, right, to run my you know opportunities and pipeline. Why, why the hell would I do that, right? What a complete hypocrite I would be. I'd be a complete hypocrite if I used you know um, you know some other planning software when I've got Odoo. I'd be a complete hypocrite if I used QuickBooks instead of using Odoo Accounting, right? So we use the tools we sell, okay? And if it's not good enough for us, then it's not good enough for our clients and it's our job to fix it, okay? And so we spent a lot of time, all right? And we, I tell clients, if you went out to odoo.com and you went and signed up to that in your company, if you're a manufacturing company, you did it today, it's going to be about 70% ready out of the box, okay? Um, and for your company, because guess what? It's trying to be all things to all people, right? Thousands of companies around the world run on Odoo, right? Um, so it's impossible for Odoo to make it, you know, exactly fit every single industry. So we, we tend to think about about 70% ready out of the box. 
the 30% is really what we add, okay? It's making it usable in your industry, okay? And we've got a, we have a standard set of modules that we've built that sit on top of Odoo because guess what? We've heard the same thing from many clients many times. So, you know, unlike our competitors, we don't charge every client for that unique development every time. Guess what? We build it once, okay? And then we offer it to all of our clients, right? It means it's, it's much more affordable and it's easy to upgrade, okay? That gets you to about 90%, all right? Gets you from 70 to 90%. That's our standard um, um, uh, Silverdale modules that we call them. And then there's that 10%. That's the customization part. And again, we wouldn't even touch that uh, for the first three months. We really want people using standard. Um, so Odoo out of the box, great system. You know, uh, I had big plans originally that we were going to do the same thing and we're going to do, you know, be ERP system agnostic as a company. But the reality is, you know, Odoo is such a great flexible system. I haven't found an industry or a circumstance that it hasn't been applicable. And you have to pay money to use the system? Like, yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, so so as I mean, a do you as a company have to pay to use the Odoo system? Yes, we do. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we pay just like everybody else. Okay. So we have an Odoo instance, and we pay our license fee just like our clients do, right? Um, we also pay to be an Odoo partner. Okay, uh, we are an official Odoo partner, and um, we pay to be part of that program. Um, Odoo pass us leads um, that they think are appropriate for our you know location and experience. Um, we got some great leads from them, and we always appreciate getting those. But as I say, most of our business, in fact, is coming from folks who've tried to do it either themselves or with another partner and eventually find ourselves, uh, find their way to us. Is there any that would not be a match for what you do? I haven't found one yet. Okay. You know, I haven't found one yet. As I say, our our client base is really diverse from a botanical garden that does memberships and garden entry and sells plants, okay, um, and manages their plant database in the system. There's one end of the scale. We've got manufacturing companies doing printing. We've got a cell phone refurbishment uh, company. We've got an auction business that uses Odoo. We've got a company that does um, herbal supplements. Uh, we've got a cafe. We've got... Uh, um, a uh, Chinese dumpling uh, house, a restaurant chain as a and client. What's, what's more random, that the dumpling place or the plant place? There you go, right? There you go. And that's the thing is that the system itself is so robust and it can it's it can be used in really any industry. Uh, I, honestly, if you've got a if you've got a process, okay, um, if you buy stuff, sell stuff, create an invoice, buy you know, pay vendor bills, you, you can use the system, right? So Nick, Nick, talk about, I found this also, democratizing enterprise resource planning. What does yeah. that mean? Yeah, democratization, this is really big for me. Um, this is one of the more core things that we do as a company is what we mean by democratizing ERP is making it accessible to companies of any size, okay? Traditionally, the big ERPs, the SAPs of the world, the Microsoft Dynamics, all those guys, that are chasing the corporations, right? If you haven't got, you know, two years to, to do this thing and you haven't got, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, right, ERP really has been out of reach of most small, medium-sized businesses, okay? What we've done is we've taken the, um, the way that we implement ERP, okay, we've got that down now to such a great science, okay, um, that I can 
pretty accurately give you a quotation just from a couple of phone calls, some questions. I can give you, okay, here's what I think it's going to look like in terms of timeline and in terms of cost. And again, we work on fixed timeline, fixed cost, right? Um, and so what that does is it opens up um, our methods, okay, and getting access to these world-class ERP systems to companies that no, wouldn't necessarily get access to that, right? Um, so just the other week there, I was um, over in Ohio uh, on a client go live, okay, fairly small company, uh, mom and pop business, uh, been around for 30 years. Um, they're never going to be able to afford uh, an SAP or a Microsoft Dynamics, right? Never, okay? That's just out, completely out of reach. But guess what? What we do and the way we do it is very much uh, accessible to them. That's what we really mean by democratizing. It also means what we focus on is a very repeatable and predictable way of doing what we do. Um, and that gives people great comfort. So let's suppose, um, I'll make these numbers up. You, you did a client for like, we'll say $80,000 yep. delivery in like six months, right? Yep. What happened like, through the fall of the company, the six month timeline is, is missed, right? What happens then? Does the company pay you more to keep on going or you say, like, how does that work? Yeah, so how the, so generally how that works with us, as I said before, like, I would never do an $80,000 project, okay? okay I'm right? Okay, put, yeah. Put, so okay. so yeah, I'm, right. I'm going to split that up into phases, okay? I'm going to split that up into different stages as well. Now, if we don't deliver on time, Okay, we have we, you get that phase for free. But it's a but okay. it's a fault of the company, not your fault. Well, if if it's a fault, so we do sponsor calls every week. Okay, during a project, and we're very clear with the client as to what do we need from you, right, and what you're going to get from us. And those calls, if something's not going well, that is brought up. And so we we have to be very That's forthright. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Like you've got to be open and honest in these conversations because quite frankly, the alternative isn't worth thinking about, right? Because what happens? You get like six, eight weeks into a project and now there's a problem? Wait a minute, right? I asked you for this in week week one and I don't have it in week two. Guess what? It's going to affect week three, all right? You have to realize that, okay? This has an impact. Again, part of our democratizing ERP is about having our, what we call our Civil implementation method. It's a very prescribed way of doing things in a very set order, okay? And it really does rely on certain things happening at certain times. And when those things don't happen, don't be surprised that the timeline is going to slip. So as long as people understand the consequences of that and we make it very clear, like, hey, by Friday, I need your master data template for products, for example, right? You don't send it me till the Wednesday after, guess what? Now I can't hit the Friday milestone, okay? These things have a, have a knock-on effect. So that really open, clear, concise, crisp communication with client to say, this is what I need, this is when I need it, this is why I need it, okay? Do you have any questions about this? Can I help you with the template? Can I help you with this in any way, shape or form? If not, I look forward to getting it on Friday. <laughs> so for the date, of course you will probably see all sign off with y'all, but is there some position that y'all prefer to work with on a day-to-day -day basis that does all this stuff? Like what's that position pattern? Yeah, it's a good, good question. Um, a lot of the people we work with, will be like, it depends on what type of company it is, but a lot of the times we're working with planning managers, production manager, uh, production supervisor, warehouse supervisor, uh, someone who's running the, the shop, for example, we work with on a day-to-day -day basis. That tends to be the types of people we're working with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes, we are always talking to the CEO. Yes, we're always talking to you know the C-level people 
people on the sponsor call, but it's really that probably two, three levels down um, that we're really interacting with on every, every, on every day. And you, you would be considered a tech company, correct? Uh, some people would classify us as a tech company. I would... I would not classify us as a, techni- okay. te- a technology company. I would rather think about us more as a consulting company. Okay, okay? that happens to do tech, okay. right? Um, we're I would say we're very much more of a, a business process, change management, and technology in that order. Okay, so you're based at Silverdale. Yep, which is like an hour away from Seattle with all the tech stuff. Why? Basic company Silverdale. I don't. I don't know. Maybe I'm sure there are some tech companies in there. Some companies in Silverdale. Yeah. But why Silverdale versus a big where everything's happening in Seattle? Well, uh, honestly, most of our team is remote, um, so I don't really have need to have the corporate office as such. Now, our our corporate office is a small blue building that used to be a house. It's a little bungalow um, that uh, that we have. That's our office. Uh, we don't need anything bigger than that, quite frankly. You know, we're a modest company, right? We don't splash our cash around. Um, you know, we're the same as our clients in that respect. We're also, I would classify ourselves as a small company, exactly the sort of people our clients are. So we're careful, careful with our money. Um, so I'm not going to, you know, rent an office space in the center of Seattle when I can be in Silverdale and it's 22 minutes commute to my house so <laughs> great reason great reason so next Nick talk about the importance of fixing problems for the long term oh yeah 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 this is one of the things we see quite frequently is um fixing the the symptom rather than the root cause and not really getting to the root cause of these problems. We've fallen into that trap ourselves a few times of really not going through and asking why enough times, being the the five-year-old, okay, going why, 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 just doing that helps us to really get to the root cause of stuff. Um, there's nothing worse than thinking we fix something three weeks later, the same help ticket comes through again and again and again. It's frustrating for the client. God, it's frustrating for us too, quite frankly, right? And if we don't get to the root cause of that stuff and really have that open, honest conversation about, hey, what's really causing this? Uh, and and as always, doing the right thing for the long term, right? Again, one of our brand promises as a company, right, is if I do your Odoo implementation, okay? So if you came to me and said, hey, I want you to do our implementation, fantastic. Part of the deal, okay, of us doing your implementation, in two years' time, I'm going to upgrade you to the latest Odoo version for free, okay? All right? And I'm going to keep doing that, right, for the next 20 years, right? Why can I do that and how, how on earth can that be profitable for us? Well, the reality is that by doing that, it means that when I'm making decisions today about what to customize and what to tinker with, right, I know in two years' time we're going to have to come back and fix it, right? So if I don't do it right now, I'm not going to have the time and money to do it right later. So guess what? Do it right now, okay? So would you be the senior company being married, being a part-time guitar piano player, and I'm sure you don't know things, <laughs> How do you do your calendar? Like, how do you break your calendar down on a weekly basis? Ah, oh, man. Uh, right now, we're extremely busy, uh, and it, we are working with a lot of clients. Uh, we're working with a client right now in Dubai uh, that's involving some very early morning starts for us uh, to uh, to meet with that client. So my my working week tends to be Monday to Friday four. 5 a.m. Um, till about 6 p.m. Um, most days. That's how it works. Uh, evenings are pretty sacrosanct for me. Good, good, good few hours uh, at home uh, with the husband and with the dog. Um, I'm 
you know, I'm pretty set on that, especially when I'm not traveling. When I'm traveling, I'm with clients like literally 12, 13 hours a day. Why? Because I want to maximize the time that I've got with them. It's really precious. Um, but when I'm at home, I'm at home, you know, um, and I try and make the most. I, try, I don't work from home. Um, I only work from the office. That's actually a good rule for people to have. Honestly. Oh, yeah. So what part of your time is spent traveling? Um, so I probably spend half of my time at client sites. Um, depends whether it's a local client that's commutable for me. That's great. That's a real luxury for me, quite frankly. Um, but most of the time I'm traveling, I go out on Sunday, back on the Thursday night or the Friday, or the Friday and I'm doing that you know, at least two weeks a month. So with all this traveling, everything else you're doing, how do you make sure you take care of yourself? Yeah, so uh, I always go for a walk every morning. I always do my mobility exercises in the morning without without a doubt. Um, you've got to do that. You've got to not, it's very tempting when you're traveling. Hey, you go down to the hotel bar, you have a couple of drinks, you have the cheeseburger, right? It's really tempting to do that. But the reality is you can't, you can't continue to do that every single week. Whenever you're with a client, of course, Clients like to be hospitable. They like to take you for dinner. They like to take you for a few drinks. But, you know, I always say to my clients as well, hey, let's do it once, okay? Uh, at the start of the project, I'm fine with that, okay? Let's let's do the hospitality thing. But you know something? When I'm there all week with you, you don't need to entertain me every every evening, okay? Guess what? You've got a family as well, right? Uh, you've got a life outside of your workplace, you know, go go focus on that. I will see you in the office tomorrow morning. I don't need to be entertained uh, in the evening. So I, I do try and push back on clients when that happens. You know those different cities? Do you like try to uh, cover our time during the week? Like do you go do like tourist stuff, so to speak? Yeah, you know, quite quite frequently what I'll try and do is plan my trips. Uh, if I'm away for two weeks, I'll try and plan that so that I do have the weekend somewhere. Um, and I will try and do something. So yeah, I'll make sure I'm somewhere interesting, you know. Uh, let's face it, my type of travel and the types of clients we work in, I, I'm not downtown. I'm not in the glass uh, glass office, right? I tend to be in the middle of nowhere in an industrial estate, uh, you know, with all the puddles and the grit roads and everything else. I'm not I'm not staying uh, in the center of town, right? I'm in yeah. I'm in the Hampton Inn somewhere, right? Like a lot of people. So, um, but if I'm there over a weekend, you know, I will actually travel somewhere and go do something, go see something, go for a walk or. or something like that, I'll try and make a point of it. So far from your experience, talk about some of the pros and cons of being of having your own company. Well, certainly I would say the pros is the, you know, what I would say flexibility, okay, the ability to make your own decisions, be kind of master of your own destiny. Um, if you're like me in that respect, right, that you want to really have that level of control, you certainly get that. Um, but what I would also say, though, don't be any delusion about you have a lot of freedom, okay, because actually your client then becomes your boss. That's what I've found. Um, you know, I've worked for big companies before. I've worked in teams before. I've had a manager before, right? Um, you know, those poor people. Uh, now I think back on it. Um, you know, and you're really swapping the manager and the supervisor. Uh, you're swapping that out for your client. And the reality is you have a lot more bosses at that point. Yeah, you have 30 clients, right? That's right. Yeah. So you have 30 bosses. That's right. Exactly right. Yeah, I know some people, I know some old company, I don't, I'm not a boss. Do get it all wrong. Yep. Yep. Have so many <laughs> 100% agree with that. I 100% agree with that. Yeah, I, I see every single one of my clients is, is really my boss, right? Um, and, you know, quite rightly, my clients aren't shy about calling me up and saying, hey, your team have messed this up or this is broken or whatever, okay? Right? And they'll do that and I want them to do that. Um, but yeah, I think certainly, 
you know, don't don't be in any delusion about that level of uh, kind of freedom that you get, right? Um, you are swapping one boss for for thirty, as I say in my case. Um, but what I'd also say as well is one of the things I have a very big sense of is is legacy, actually, uh, and that may sound kind of grand for the sort of work that we do, but. You know, my 30 years of experience, you know, one advantage of having, you know, the gray beard and the 30 years under my belt here is that now I'm working with folks who are maybe fresh out of college or, you know, are you know, a couple of years into their career. And I'm, I hope certainly that they're learning a lot from our ways of working and the way we do things, which will stand them in good stead for whatever they decide to do in the future, hopefully with with, with us for a, for a while. But, um, but I do actually have a more increasing sense of I want to pass on that knowledge and I want to pass that on and I want to benefit more than just what I, you know, I could easily be doing what I'm doing as an independent consultant, right? Okay, I could easily do that, right? It certainly was a route that was open to me, um, but that doesn't scale and it also doesn't create a, a great sense of legacy, right? Which is really what I think I'm building here at Silverdale. So this question probably said come out wrong, but I'm presuming you have like different generations of the workforce working for you. Yep. Do you find you have to like, how like speak or deal with different generations differently? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, yeah, I, I'm always kind of surprised that how, how variable, in fact, those conversations need to be. Right. Um, I would say with the younger generation um, in our workforce, and I'm talking about people literally fresh out of college, right? We've got um, our, our entry level position in our company um, is, is designed for people fresh out of college. Um, and you tend to have to be very direct, okay? You have to be very direct, very specific, okay, on what you're looking for, when, what format, and when you need it by. Um, and it the the feedback of that tends to be, I would say, again, it's a very generalization, but certainly my experience of of our uh, our team is it tends to be very laid back, you know? Oh yeah, yeah, I'll get onto it. Yeah, no problem, no problem. But you know something, you do get it, right? Um, it, may, it may not be the quite as manic or as, uh, you know, uh, look like it's got sense of urgency about it, but it does actually happen. With our more mature um, uh, members of the team, tends to be much more coaching, a lot more mentoring, a lot more suggesting, hey, why don't you have a think about this? Or, you know, why don't we look at an alternative way of doing this thing? Tends to be much more about, oh yeah, that's a good idea. I hadn't thought of it that way. Okay, off I go, off they go and think about it and do it more. So I tend to find that I, I hey, I have to adapt my message. Uh, I can, I tend to be quite blunt um, and demanding with most of my people, quite honestly. Um, and yeah, I, I, sometimes I get it right, and so, a lot of the time I'm sure I get it wrong. But just uh, you know that though, because I know so many bosses. This one size fit all. The two were the same, right? And you got to treat people differently. You got to be yeah. the right, so to speak. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I you know everybody in our company obviously everyone's an individual and they're all motivated in different ways as well right um, so you've got to learn that pretty quickly uh, if you want to get things done from your point of view what makes someone a, a good entrepreneur you know I'm not sure there is a um, kind of a mold for that right um, I think again 
you you could be a good entrepreneur, I think, at any age uh, as well. This is certainly not an age-related thing, although we always hear the stories about the you know the twenty-three-year-olds, the twenty-five-year-olds, you know, doing this, uh, you know, out of, out of college or whatever. Yeah, but they, they take their daddy's one million dollars. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? Good for them, right? Uh, yeah. If, if anyone's out there who has that, let me know. Okay, uh, I need a couple of those. Um, but I, I don't know if there is a mold as such. I think as long as you've got to be resilient, though, mm-hmm. right? You've got to be tenacious. You've got to be resilient. Um, I also, you've got to be, f- I, it's kind of a contradiction here, but you've also got to be pretty flexible. It, you could be flexible when you can be, but also being rigid when you have to be, right? Uh, and knowing what you really stand for, what you can compromise on, and what you're not willing to compromise on, right? And again, it takes a while to figure that out. It's taken us a while, taking me a while to figure out what am I willing to compromise on and what am I not, okay? Uh, it takes a while to figure that out. So when you bring up people onto your company, what kind of value or characteristics are you looking for them to have to join your company? Yeah, so so again, we have a list of um, company tenants that we have, um, you know, uh, being a good ex-Amazon employee. Uh, they have their leadership uh, principles. I borrowed uh, some of that. You know, our, our tenants aren't the same as Amazon's ones. Some of them are similar, but, but not the same. And really, you know, on day, uh, I don't know, day minus 10, I think, of Silverdale, I sat down and thought about, based on all the places I've worked before, all the teams I've been in, all the people I've worked for, you know, what do I want my tenants to look like, right? Um, and as I say, I, I wrote those 10 things out before I even started the company because I wanted to kind of set out what did I want it to look and feel like. You know, I probably look at that list at least three or four times a week, okay? Um and in the last three and a half years of the company, I haven't changed a single word, okay? I always think, oh, maybe I'll just go take another look and see if I want to tweak something there. I've never have, right? They're still as relevant today as they were three and a half years ago. Um, and we use our tenants to help us hire, okay? Um, so we'll ask questions, you know, uh, again, you know, a lesson that I kind of learned from the Amazon days about, you know, resume is just a resume, right? Anybody can... You, you go online and there's people out there who write a great resume for you. You have chat to your resume for you. <laughs> there you go. There you go, right? Um, and I'm not interviewing a resume, right? I'm interviewing a person. And so, what I, you know, I always start an interview with asking someone, okay, give me a, you know, give me a couple of minutes. Just introduce yourself, but don't tell me anything that's on your resume, okay? I've already got that. Assume I've read it. I understand it. I haven't needed, needed someone to read to me since I was six, okay? So don't read to me your CV. Don't read to me your, what's on your resume. Who are you? Okay. What do you do? Why do you do it? Right. Tell me that bit because that isn't in your resume. Okay. And that kind of kicks off the conversation into, okay, so tell me about a time when you've done this or when you've experienced this or when you had to deal with this type of, type of situation. Um, you know, I, I, I have to say, I hate recruiting. It's one of the things that I absolutely loathe. Okay. Um, why? Because it's so difficult, right? Such a difficult thing to get right. And it's such an easy thing to get wrong. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was fun to tell people, it doesn't matter how good the economy, how bad the economy is, companies hiring, have a hard time for hiring, people are trying to find out that pattern of hard. 
No fighting. There's always this disconnect between the two. Right. right. There's got to be a way of getting this, getting these things uh, together, isn't there, right? Because you're right, it's such a big disconnect. Um, and we try as much as we can. We we make a point of, you know, when you're in the interview process at Silverdale, you're going to meet three or four people. Mm-hmm. I interview every single person before they join, okay? I'm the last person they will meet, okay, before, uh, before they join the company. Not because I don't trust my team. I do trust my team. Um, but what I'm really looking for is the tenets. I'm looking for uh, is this is this a Silverdale person, right? Mm-hmm. And Silverdale is not a great fit, I would say, for the majority of people. We're very prescribed in the way we do. The standard we expect is very high. People who come to us from some of our you know people we see as our competitors don't do so well, okay? Because they're used to oh okay this is how we do things. This is how the industry works. Well. Yeah, it's not how we work, yeah. you know. Um, and people really struggle with that. Um, and we do a, we do a very, uh, I think, a, I think a good structured interview process. We give people notes before they come to interviews to say, hey, here's how we're going to structure our questions. We have it on our, in fact, it's on our blog, uh, on our website that says, hey, are you sure you want to work at Silverdale? If you do, read this first, right? And. You know, we, we tell people, here's the sorts of questions you're going to be asked. Here's the structure we're looking for in your answer, right? Uh, it's not a cheat sheet or anything. It's saying, hey, I want to get the best out of you. I really need to understand, are you a great fit for Silverdale? And you need to understand, are we a great fit for you? Okay. Um, so meeting three or four of us um, is really important as part of that process. But also, the other thing that we do, which I don't think is that common, is if, say, you were joining our company as a business analyst, for example, like, I'm going to set up a call with a business analyst who we just hired, mm-hmm. right? So you're going to speak, to, not for an interview, okay? It's not an interview. It's more for you to ask our current business analyst who might be with us for a few months ahead of you. Go ask them what it was, what's it really like, mm-hmm. okay? Right? What's What was your first 30 days uh, like? What's what's it like at the ground, um, at, the, at the call phase, right? They can speak to me. They can speak to my HR manager as much as they want, but they've got to speak to people who are going to do the thing that they're doing, right? And ask those types of questions. I don't think that's very common. Yeah, I know what question I like to ask when I'm doing interviews is like, tell me something you're proud of that's not on your resume. Mm. Like, that's a good question. Yeah, what's what are you going to refer to your resume? You know, because some that's more personal, right? Like yeah. Maybe they're like you know, um, they were the Eagle Scouts, or maybe they did some. Maybe the president's doing good with something that wouldn't be on a resume. Right. Um, That's a good question. I'm going to borrow that. Yes. yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so you talk about your company some already, but can you go more detail, like how the company got started? Yeah. Where you folks are now, what your big dream business for is moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. So where the company really started from. So, um, so let's say I, I worked for Amazon a few years ago, uh, left Amazon, went to a specialist logistics company for a few years. Uh, and then I went to work for a startup um, for, for a while. We did. Um, uh, an ERP implementation there and it's been a little while since I've done one of those ERP implementations and I did one and it was horrible um, I hated it and I remembered all the things I hated about ERP implementations uh, it all came flooding back um, like a bad memory um, and what that really got me thinking about was how would I if I was doing this how would I do this 
well? You know, what does good look like in this space? And then it really started percolating around, wait a minute, I've done, you know, a dozen ERP implementations in the past. I know what good looks like and I know what bad looks like. I bet I could build something that makes it really good. And that's really where it came from. It's like, well, wait a minute. If I target the companies where I have good experience, you know, manufacturing, logistics, warehousing, et cetera, um, if I target that kind of industry in the way that I would want to implement this, I can make this work. And that's really where Silverdale came from i was i would say very lucky okay because day one of silverdale the startup i was with they were client number one they actually stayed with me as i started my new journey which was great right having that first customer on day one is you know was a real blessing quite frankly um and it gave us some runway to really figure out you know who we were and what we wanted to do. Um, as I say, I said earlier, we started off the same as everybody else. We were outsourcing development and and, and that was a disaster. And after three months, we gave up on it. Um, and then really what it came down to was getting much more structure around how we work and how we get things done. That's when we implement, uh, we started the Silverdale implementation method, we call it SIM. Um, and it really is our very prescribed step-by-step -step way of implementing an ERP, okay? So like if you came to me tomorrow and said, hey, I wanna implement an ERP, I I'm not starting from scratch from a blank piece of paper, right? Um, you know, you do one of these projects, guess what? First thing most of the consultant companies would do is say, okay, let's start mapping out your business processes, okay? You go to a lot of these companies like, okay, what's that? <laughs> what's one of those, okay? Uh, how does that work then, right? And then you spend weeks or months mapping these damn things out. And guess what? You end up with the same mess you're in today, right? Because you're just telling me exactly what you do, right? You're not telling me what it should look like. So we started building our own business, what we call a business process library. So we've got about 200 standard business processes now, which if you do this thing, it's going to work in standard Odoo, right? And if you do this process in a specific way. And so as one of the reasons why we are so good in the startup space, okay, is because a lot of these startups who are maybe three, four, five months in, maybe they've got round one under their belt, and now they're getting now they're under a bit of pressure, okay, to actually manage a business, okay. Oh my God, you, what what's accounts payable, right? What a, you know what does that mean, right? And they're not focused on that, right? They're focused on the product, they're focused on the thing that they're there to do, right? But they've got all this going on in the background, they don't know what to do with it, right? So. For startups, we're really great for that because we come in and say, you know something? Boom, there's your 200 business processes there, okay? That's how you run a business. Do those things in that order, in that way, okay? And guess what? You don't need to worry about AP. You don't have to worry about AR. You don't have to worry about managing a sales pipeline. It's all there. For, there's your business process, okay? Just do that thing, okay, in that way. And you can go focus on this stuff. So that's one of the things that really sets us apart is that we don't come in and say, okay, you know, what business processes do you have or, or let's build them. We don't do that, okay? What we do with customers is we'll come in and say, here's our standard business process. Here's how it works in the standard Odoo system. Why can't you do that? Okay, so we don't ask what do you do and how do you do it? We ask, why can't you do it like this? Give me a really good reason why you can't do it this way, okay? If you can't come up with a reason, guess what? That's what you're doing. <laughs> let's do it that way. And like, what's the vision for the company? So the vision of the company really is uh, we want to be the Odoo partner of choice for both clients 
but also for Odoo, okay? Uh, we want to be seen as that preeminent um, Odoo partner. We want to be the de facto. If you're implementing Odoo, uh, you need to go speak to Silverdale, right? That's the safest, quickest, cheapest, le least risk way of doing it is these guys, okay? Um, and we, we want to be synonymous with uh, with uh, with this industry. We, we want to take it over, so. Has this ever happened? I'm sure every day you, you word it better than this, but you ever to like do a live with your company, right? And you're like, after three days, two days, you're like, oh my God, how are they even in business? They say they're profitable, but I don't know, right? Like, what is going on here? This is just complete madness. Yes, uh, quite frequently, in fact, right? Quite frequently that happens, okay? When you, you know, you come into a business and you ask that question, right? Uh, how do you manage your age receivables, for example? And they look at you as if you just, you know, talked in Martian or something, you know? And you're like, okay, well, how do you know how much people, how much money people owe you? You know, like, well, uh, we send invoices and at some point the money arrives and, you know, and you're right, it's in my head, I'm going, oh my God, you know, how, does, how do you even do this, right? And so it does happen, right? You go into, a, 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 you know, a warehouse and you go, great, how do you find stuff? Oh yeah, Bob, he's been here 30 years. He knows exactly where everything is. Yeah, okay, good old, good old Bob, right? So what happened to Bobby eventually when they retire? Right, right, but Bob's, you know, ERP in his head, you know, disappears and or suddenly- Or he's mad at you and just quits or, you know, whatever the case may be. That's it, exactly. You know, and one of the things is, you know, I, I you know, Challenge. I challenge clients on this fact. Um, I had a client just the other week. We were in their warehouse, and and I said, and, and none of the locations are you know barcoded or <laughs> even even named, right? Um, and I asked the question, "How do you know where the things are?" Right? And it's like, "Oh, we know exactly where everything is." And and I went to we went to a location, and the little label that was beside it said, uh, "I can't remember what it said." It was it was something like some detergent or something. And it had like Brillo pads on it. I'm like, well, that isn't that. And they're looking going, oh yeah, that shouldn't be there. That should be, uh, where is that thing again? Uh, I think it's supposed to be, no, I'm, actually is it over there? You know, I'm like, you don't know where anything is, man. <laughs> you know, and so, so again, people get through it because guess what? They get through it, right? And then you start asking questions around, well, how many customer returns do you get? Oh yeah, yeah. We, we send the wrong stuff sometimes, and it comes back. And okay, and then customer, we let the customer keep it, and we send them a replacement. I go, okay, well, how much is that costing you? And how much is that costing you? And how much? And suddenly it's like, like the, you start seeing the dollar signs in the eyes going round and round, and it's like, you know, something. Yeah, maybe we do need to have a little bit more help in that area. You know, that's that's not quite as good as we thought. You know. So when you first started company. Did you use like your personal savings? You took out a personal loan or a bank loan? How did you fund the company when you first started? Yeah, so a lot of it was savings. Um, and that was online? Yeah, that's, that's it. So a lot of it is savings. Um, and uh, we had a small loan that we took out as well. Um, after, you know, because of COVID as well, we got the EIDL uh, from that as well, which was, which, was, which was great timing for us. I cannot say that, you know, uh, worst time to start a company right at the start of COVID. Actually, one of the best times to start a company as well because we got access to some funding we wouldn't normally get access to. That was great for us. Uh, got us through the first year when we couldn't travel and do big projects. So that, that was good. Um, but but now we're self-funding. Um, you know, we're profitable. We're able to manage the business now on our own cash flow. Um, so we don't have, uh, we don't really have any debt to speak of uh, other than travel costs that go on a credit card. Uh, we don't have a overdraft. We don't have any of that stuff. So we're, uh, I think we're blessed on that, but it's because we started off in the right way. We got everything paid off in the right way, you know, and now we manage the business off cash flow. So for your company, 
like talk about this, talk about the process. Like, I don't think a lot of small business owners get this. Like, you have to decide how many days off you give your people. Like, are you be able to be chill 14 days a year, 30, you know, all that kind of stuff, like paid holidays. Always the talk process of deciding those kind of like, like you know, ankle biker things. So, so yeah, it's yeah, a good, great question. And we started. Like I, I'm, it's one of those things I really kind of don't like is these very complex processes and procedures internally for managing that stuff. Um, I thought originally that we'd be this kind of really kind of laissez-faire, you know, blase company. I do whatever you want, right? I don't care. Take a day off if you want a day off. We we went down that road for a long time, okay. But actually, what I found is that. Uh, a lot of people really struggle with that level of freedom, quite honestly. Not, not I'm saying people kick the ass out of it. I actually don't believe that was true. I actually think it was the opposite, right? I actually found that when we had the kind of unlimited time off policy, people didn't take any time off, right? Yeah, I know that's how that true. Like, you know, if you have unlimited time off, they actually take less time than two weeks, uh, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, always that mentality. If I take three weeks off, they're going to think I'm not part of the company or that bullshit. Right, you know? right, right. And that, that was, that was, I would say that certainly was my big learning, right? Is I actually found that people weren't taking the time off. They weren't, you know, taking the two weeks a year away. So, so we, we've actually rolled that back and we've actually now gone to a much more formalized process. But again, yeah, we're, you know, we're pretty flexible with it. When people need something, we, we do it, right? We always do the right thing, okay? Uh, whether it's an employee who's got a family emergency or whatever. Do the right thing, you know. Uh, I'm not going to be counting hours or days off when a family member is ill, or you know, God forbid, yeah. something worse happens. You know, that's a that's a terrible place to be. You know, I don't want people making those types of decisions because they're so fearful about keeping their job. Right, it's a terrible way to do it. It is. So you already talk about some, but can you talk about what you do for fun? Yeah, so um, spend a lot of time uh, watch movies. Uh, I do spend a lot of time uh, trying to play that stupid guitar uh, and the piano. Um, I spend a lot of time in the garden as well. Uh, my husband will be laughing now when he hears that. Um, most of my time is spent lifting heavy things and moving things. Uh, here's the gardener, so I, I just I just move things. Um, and yeah, so that, that's really what I do. Um, most of my time is working. I work probably six days a week. More most weeks. Um, I think I'm currently on day 27 <laughs> straight working, actually. Um, it's been a quite a run over the last month with clients and goal lives. We've been pretty busy. Um, but but yeah, fun for me really is kind of downtime at home. And I mean, at home, you know, not at home working, right? Um, I try, especially the weekends, I don't bring my laptop home, uh, leave it in the, at the office. So... What kind of movies do you like to watch? You know, um, I like sci-fi movies. Okay. Uh, that's that's kind of my my genre. It's okay. uh, my go-to. Uh, also, quite a pretty big fan of uh, some of the old um, British movies as well. The old Carry On films, things like that. Okay. If you've never seen any of those, they're all good. Any movies coming out soon that you want to? You're looking forward to? Um, I don't really know if there's anything coming out. I'm really looking forward to, to be honest. Yeah, I don't know if any movies coming out now. I think yeah. I can't even think of one right now that I'm waiting on. Uh, I know the uh, John Wick Four, of course, has come out. I don't know; it's not sci-fi, but uh, I've actually pretty. I've really enjoyed that that whole uh, series. To be honest, um, we've been watching them again in preparation for four, <laughs> four coming out. Uh, I can't wait for that to, to see it. So, yeah. So, Nick, is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't, or anything else you want to talk about? Uh, no, I think we've covered a lot of stuff there. You know, um, I think we're. 
you know, for me, uh, my time of life where I am, my time of life, God, it sounds like I'm 80 or something, right? Uh, my time of life, you know, for me, is much more important for me to build those relationships with clients. As a company, we're trying to make the company do the same thing, right? It's really difficult to do that, right? To kind of push a persona on a company like that, and, you know, especially with lots of diverse people. But, but for us, really, it's about setting ourselves apart from our competition. It's about doing things differently. It's about taking a different approach um, and really carving out our own industry, right? And our own niche and what we do, uh, it really makes us set apart. So, yeah. How can you still do whiskey sampling? <laughs> um, uh, every weekend. Uh, <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> Not often enough uh, is the right answer. Um, you know, I'm pretty partial to a whiskey of an evening, uh, especially at the weekend. Um, I tr whenever I buy whiskey, I try and buy two bottles, right? One I keep, one I open. Okay. Uh, so, you know, it's always a good tip if you can, but always buy two bottles of it, right? Um, because as soon as you open it, of course, the value of it, you know, disappears. Yeah. But equally, if you buy it and then don't open it, what the hell is the point as well, right? So if you can, buy two. So you have your own personal collection? I do. About yeah. hundred. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> about a hundred. Um, I buy a lot of my whiskey at auction. Um, the problem is the auction is in Scotland, and so I buy these things at auction, and then shipping them to the US is a real pain. Um, just getting them into the country. So now everybody who visits uh, from Scotland has to bring a bottle with them. Uh, everybody has to bring one. So uh, that's how I get my bottles out. It takes me a while, but I get them all out eventually. <laughs> So Nick, can you give us any last minute wisdom or advice, anything you want to talk about? Uh, I would say last piece of wisdom for me is uh, be curious, right? Uh, it's one of the things I think I don't see enough of these days um, is people who really want to learn and understand something. Um, curiosity is one of the most underrated uh, traits, I think, that people uh, can have. Um, and, you know, be curious in everything you're doing and you'll be fine. Nick, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. It's been great fun. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. Don't you know, pump it up. You've got to pump it up. Don't you know, pump it up. You've got to pump it up. Don't you know, pump it up. You've got to pump it up.